Hey, this is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. And with me today is the very diabetic Hans. Diabolical diabetic. That's what people have been calling you, right? That's your wrestling persona? Yep. I uh, I uh, get cut and never heal. That's my superpower. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's very unfortunate. You do have diabetes. I don't know if you didn't want that outed on the show, but Cookie Boy well, has diabetes. No more cookies for me. More only uh, what uh, cauliflower cookies? Is that a thing? Cauliflower cookies. What about snack wells? (laughs) Egg cookies? Yes, I can eat that. I think. Yeah, I don't know about that. Hey, we have Max Thrax on the show for the first time. How are you doing tonight, Max? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. I'm excited to uh, get into the two topics of discussion tonight. I do have your book here as well. Oh, awesome! Uh, Thank you. God is a killer. I've been reading that. And Max, if you're not familiar, is a tremendous writer. I encourage you guys to look up his book on Amazon. Or if there, is there like a, you know, a less corporatized version of getting the book where it's going to like benefit you or the publishing company a little bit more? Is it just through traditional venue? Right now, it's just through Amazon. I actually just got my author's copies uh, a few days ago. So I got 30 of those. And, uh, you know, some of them are just going to be, you know, handed out or just sent to people. Um, but you know, as I get more, I might just try to sell them directly. You know, I don't, I don't really care how I sell them. Well, I hope it's, I hope it's doing well so far. Um, it is, uh, it, it's very enjoyable and very reminiscent of, uh, the, the person we're going to be talking about quite a lot tonight, which is George V. Higgins, which is one of my favorite authors. He was a Brockton native, uh, author, one of the greats of, of crime fiction of the late 20th century. I just learned today, as a matter of fact, he died very young, only 59 years old, didn't make it to the 21st century. Um, But we're going to be talking about two films. But before we do that tonight, you know, all these Instagram and YouTube influencers have been talking about, oh, the Dolly 2, Dolly 2 AI. Are you either of you guys familiar with Dolly 2 or or any of the, the AI generations that have been just everywhere? Well, if you've been on Twitter the past week or so, I don't think you can really avoid dolly i don't really know that much about it other than you know kind of what it does it's kind of creepy i mean i i think if this is where it's at right now then illustrators are going to have a very hard time uh in the not so distant future because dolly mini which is like the public available version of it right now you can get like good playstation one style graphic like ai generations from that and that's fun but you can't really do anything with that. I think the, the dimension limit is 200 by 200. And then uh, I just got access to um, something called Mid Journey, which is about like eight steps above that. It's not quite Dolly 2. Dolly 2 is super exclusive right now. They're only allowing like, if you have a million subs on, on YouTube, then you're going to have access to Dolly 2. That's who they want talking about it. And that is crazy. That's off the charts. Um, insane. And um, Mid Journey is kind of an interesting one because you can emulate an artist's style pretty close. So uh, one of my favorite artists is Jean-Michel Basquiat, who has a very distinct kind of look uh, to his work. And so I was just feeding in a bunch of like uh, such and such in the style of Jean-Michel Basquiat last night because I paid 30 bucks to get this, this damn uh, AI for the month. And Hans, I sent you a link to Imager where uh, we have quite a few of these creations. If you want to do screen share and pull that up right here in the Zoom call. Uh, So I don't think it's going to be in order. You're going to start with. So I I was just thinking, you know, I like Seinfeld. What if what if we just did some AI generations of Michael Richards as Kramer on Seinfeld eating uh, fake Bitcoin coins in excitement? And uh, it came out kind of looking anti-Semitic, you know, um, but this is this is kind of a horror show. This is kind of spooky. Yeah. Why? Why did you? I uh, I try to get creative with it because I as soon as you sent the link, I got an email for it uh, with an invitation uh, because I had a sent my email uh, a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't think of anything. I was completely like a. What did I? I think I I, I, I requested uh, Joe Biden picking flowers in Auschwitz, uh, and that was and that was cool. But besides yeah. that, I, I just I, I couldn't think of anything. Uh, but yeah, this that's a, is very hold on. That's the like, first and only thing you thought of. You could <laughs> yeah, you came up with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then I just did my you know life things, so I didn't have time to just sit here and 
think of, I don't know, Care Bears and Human Centipede or, you know, things like Sure. Well, there were a few of these, but it wound up becoming uh, Sasha Baron Cohen as the dictator in that movie that failed a couple of years ago. So this was just, I guess, uh, a more recent one. Why don't we just scroll down and check out uh, what's next here? Yeah, uh, we have Billy Crystal shows his pride by joining the LGBTQ at a pride parade, nothing more than a men's bikini. So this was kind of interesting. He kind of looks like Gaddafi in that first one. You know, I don't think they really... It's like Bill Burr. (laughs) Bill Burr in the second one. Uh, Well, if you want to scroll down, there's a closer up version of that second one. Uh, Just so hopefully this doesn't get us in trouble on YouTube. He's got kind of like the body of a turkey, like a roasted turkey, rotisserie chicken. Very cute imagery here. Um, You know, they even added lipstick. And then here's like a better one. In my opinion, this is Columbo. Columbo is one of my favorite shows. I quite like uh, Peter Falk. Uh, and I put in the the artist who did the Akira books. And this is, I couldn't remember what his name was, but this is one instance of, of like a good AI rendition. In my opinion, maybe you guys aren't impressed. Let me scroll down. This is supposed to be you, Hans, in the movie yes. Mass State Lottery. Maybe, um, yes, uh, it's very, <laughs> it's very flattering. <laughs> Um, are you glad you don't look like that, Hans? Well, my, my girlfriend saw it and she sent me a message. She's like, is this who you're supposed to be playing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Low, low risk is, is very nice when it comes to coming up with my characters. <laughs> well, what I did very, always, yeah. Obviously, wherever the AI draws from doesn't know who Hans Lam is. So I had to put in right. um, 36-year-old man, glasses, uh, balding. And that's what what happened now i if uh, it comes in more accurate i've discovered since if you put in latin asian 36 balding right so i don't look like a detective for a noir movie but you think that's what he looks like there sure (laughs) i mean that's pretty striking that could be you know somebody from eddie coyle as well right absolutely Yeah. yeah he's got that kind of look to him maybe uh like if Richard Jenkins in Killing Them Softly just ate cigarettes for a hundred days in a row, uh, he'd probably look something like this. All right, well, you can scroll down to the next one. Oh, right. So I typed in, hold on, I typed in Francis Bacon style portrait of a Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee. And this is um, what happened here. It's, it's, um, it's horrifying. It's, it's genuinely horrifying. What is happening, there's what's there's happening donut, down here? What <laughs> there's is, a donut and why is there a... in the coffee cup. Uh, it's really... Rose. I don't know why there's a woman in the coffee either. This is a mouth too, right? I guess so. I don't know. You might be reading too much into it. Well, that part actually looks like a Francis Bacon portrait. Yes. It, it yeah. looked like bacon up there. I mean, I guess yep. it's supposed yeah. to be yeah. that, right? It's three-fourths of a bacon, <laughs> egg, and cheese that's been eaten. So that's She's another wearing one. wearing a ba- bacon scarf too. And here's another instance of it coming out pretty well. This is uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat's rendition of Vincent Gallo, the actor, filmmaker, writer, artist. Why does he have dreads? Well, Basquiat, you know, he's... Oh, right. Right. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't always get it right. Now, this is one you you were expressing disappointment because there was like a Mexican show that was covering Hellraiser and it was like a chubby looking pinhead. So then I was like, well, what would be a more appropriate pinhead for that show? And so I did a rotund uh, Mexican version of Pinhead from Hellraiser. And it looks a lot like Kevin Smith's sausage uh, Nazi character from Yoga Hosers. Uh-huh. Well, this is the only one that actually looks Mexican. This one here. Everyone else is very... I don't know. That bottom left one looks kind of Mexican, if you ask me. This one? Maybe it's the, the, the mustache, you know? I don't know. Right. And that's me. What that's did- me, a cool guy. From right. Mass State Lottery. It looks what, what did you what did you type here? Cool guy with cool mustache wearing a raincoat. <laughs> I, I typed in slightly chubby 34-year-old man uh with a mustache in a trench coat in the snow. So there you go. Okay. See, I was even self-depreciating with it, Hans. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. How come yours doesn't look like it's got cancer though? Well, you're the bad guy. I'm the good guy, right? That's how that works. Fair enough. All right. Uh, this was the lesser version of me from Mass State Lottery. If it makes you feel better. It's a very... Uh, Toro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. With a fucked uh, up hand. With Chris Elliott's hand from Scary Movie 2. <laughs> yeah. 
a big fan of vaping. Uh, oh, this was another decent one. This is just Solid Snake. I was nerding just out about PlayStation Josh 1. Brawling at Solid Snake. Yeah. You can scroll down. I think there's one left. And this was um, just Tetsuo from Akira Courtroom Sketch. That's cool. uh, I think this one came out well. So it's a mixed bag. If you're very... Sp- oh, and here's the Golem, because I was watching the Golem uh, from 1920. Oh, yeah. I saw you posted a very anti-Semitic... It's not anti-Semitic. He's like a Jewish superhero. Oh, and this was um, Andy Warhol as Batman, because I was looking to spruce up some YouTube art on an old documentary I did on Andy Warhol's Dracula. So, yeah. Yeah. Mixed bag of art. Plenty of fun. I've been lost in this AI for like 48 hours, just constantly doing different generations here. I did try to do, I wanted to do for the artwork of this show, Robert Mitchum in the Friends of Eddie Coyle and see what would come of that. Uh, nothing great. Well, well, we'll see. Maybe we'll revise it for um, Patreon release. But anyway, so let's get into the two films we're talking about tonight. Max, you're a big fan of, uh, just like myself, of, of George V. Higgins and his work. Uh, when did you sc- discover the work of George V. Higgins? Well, I moved to Boston in January 2005, uh, right before the Pats beat the Eagles in the Super Bowl. Uh, so nice. I, I lived here, you know, I lived here for a couple years, for a few years. And then in 2009, uh, Criterion released the DVD of the Friends of Eddie Coyle, which I had never heard of before. Uh, but I knew some some old heads who were very excited uh, about the release. So I thought, okay, well, I'll check it out. And I was blown away. And then the following year, 2010, was the 40th anniversary of the novel. Uh, so Picador released a new edition with Dennis Lehane uh, giving a forward to it. And uh, you know, I was even more impressed by the novel. And then and in 2011, uh, I was lucky enough to attend a screening of Friends of Eddie Coyle at the Somerville Theater. Nice. Uh, Wesley Morris was there. Uh, back when he was still writing for the Globe, and he gave a you know a talk about it afterwards, and then in 2012, uh, Killing Them Softly came out. So for you know, like a good three years, it was just like Higgins, 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 and uh, you know I had always loved these sorts of crime stories, and I was living in Boston, so it, it just seemed perfect to me. That's also when I had really just seriously started writing fiction. Um, so he's Higgins is a huge, huge influence and you know a reference point for me. Because right now where I'm living in Stoughton, I mean, I'm, I'm 10 minutes away from where he was born, you know, not too far from where he lived for much of his life. So it's I just have to walk out the door, to, you know, kind yeah. of see Higgins. Yeah, he's definitely my favorite uh, crime writer, uh, New England writer. And he's someone I've been familiar with since around probably approximately that that same amount of time. I think it might have been the, the Criterion release that um, made me catch uh, you know, the attention of that film. And uh, I remember, uh, not dissimilar to yourself, checking it out, being very impressed with it. And then when I was looking to uh, start writing novels back in like 2011, 2012, 2013, I just binged five or six of his books in a row, just went through all of them. Um, and, uh, you know, listening to a lot of audiobooks while I was working, because I had a very menial day job at the time where I was just essentially uploading patient files day in and day out and didn't really require much attention from me um, beyond that. So I took in a lot that way. And he's uh, such a, such a great writer. And he has such a distinct style of characterizing people of being able to um, have his characters deliver dialogue that feels both um, kind of novelesque, but grounded in reality I think when you see it in these two movies, uh, maybe more so in Killing Them Softly, it it, it feels more apparent that it's very uh, litty, literature you know? But um, yeah, he's such a good, pulp, gritty author. Uh, and Hans, have you seen either of these two films prior to doing this show tonight? No. No, and I'm not familiar with anything you guys are talking about. I don't, I don't read really that much. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, uh, the first thing that caught my eye was that, yeah, the, I think uh, the Friends of Eddie Cole, they mentioned Quincy a bunch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I've been there, but that's the 70s, so it looks nothing like it uh, anymore. Uh, but no, this is the first time that, I'm, that I've watched this. I've, uh, I've been meaning to watch Killing It Softly for a while. That was recommended to me by a friend for, for years, but I just never got around to it and uh, saw it today, both of them. Well, I wouldn't say that it doesn't 
look the same. I think it, it surprisingly looks uh, very similar to how it did uh, back in the 1970s to the point where I could easily identify a number of points watching Friends of Eddie Coyle, at least. I was a little peeved because I remember they announced um, Killing Them Softly. And I, I, I was aware of George V. Higgins um, at the point prior to its release. And um, I was disappointed that they moved it to New Orleans. And this feels like very of the time. You know, the, the director kind of like, I don't mind it actually as much, but he, he, it's the, you know, the commentary of what America is in the year that that movie is being released and, and Obama and all this mm -hmm. stuff feels a little ham-fisted at points and yeah. it doesn't quite, um, it doesn't quite move as, as natural with the rest of the movie, in my opinion, anyway. Um, although I think, you know, maybe there's some reasonable points of, uh, natural overlapping there but um max what, what is your preference out of these two films i mean i think anybody asked would probably say friends of eddie coyle but i'm just curious yeah i would say eddie coyle by far yeah, i was not really that impressed by killing them softly when i saw it in the theater um and i think i probably had only really watched it you know once or twice after that before you know we were gearing up for this podcast watching it more i, I do like it a bit more but it's it is heavy handed. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of odd to see a movie that is this politically heavy handed in a, in a gangster film, you know, in the gangster genre, because when you're watching a gangster movie, you assume that, you know, politics is, is bullshit anyway. You know, like these right. the gangsters, these are the guys who are paying off the politicians and the judges and the cops. They know how the system works. They don't even need to talk about it. You know, so, so, so to kind of introduce that into the gangster film is definitely heavy handed. And I think that aesthetically, there's some cool things going on. I think that Dominic is really interested in the technical aspects of film. Um, you know, that's something that he was, he really went into in Chopper. And that was kind of like his preparation for doing this, you know, another movie about, you know, violent crooks. Uh, but it, it's more of a mishmash because, you know, it, it's not, it's not set in Boston. It's, well, it's, we don't really know where, I mean, it's filmed in New Orleans, even though they keep talking about, you know, Boston suburbs. Yeah. And yeah, they mentioned Wollaston and yeah. Somerville. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that at one point even, but there's, there's also, I think maybe because Dominic is Australian, the film is so heavy on concept and not really grounded in reality, the way that friends of Eddie Coyle is. And it, that goes down to even like very small details that, I mean, maybe if you're not from Massachusetts or have lived here a long time, you're not going to catch like Scoot McNary, you know, after doing his best Boston accent for the whole movie slips up and says uh, Haverhill instead of Haverhill. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stuff like that, or you've got a scene with James Gandolfini, you know, in a conversation talking about Ginzos when he and, uh, you know, Vincent Curatola are the most Ginzo looking guys in the entire movie. So <laughs> it's, it's not, it, these are like very subtle things, but I think it has bigger problems that it does come across as a mishmash. Although I think that there are things in it that would appeal to a modern audience that maybe Eddie Coyle doesn't have because it's yeah. more kind of like low budget and grimy, you know? Yeah. I, I thought it was much funnier than I was expecting. Uh, and I, I maybe I just like Gandolfini, but every time he opened his mouth, I was having a great time because uh, everything he was saying was so horrendous. But he was like Tony, like the Tony Soprano cadence. Uh, so every time he was on screen, I was I was glad he was in this movie, even though he, he's in it for maybe half hour. Uh, and I really enjoyed the Boston accents. Uh, because uh, it just took me back to being there and going to like that Irish uh, breakfast place with Jerry. And that's what everyone would sound like. Just very thick uh, Boston accent. Now, I don't know how authentic it is because I'm not from there. Uh, but that uh, interaction between uh, Ben Mendelsohn and uh, Scott McNary at uh, the beginning, I, I enjoyed that, that a lot. I, I, I agree with the fact that uh, it, it seems like it's trying to do a lot of things and then it doesn't really focus on anything. Uh, so we go through like what, three different stories that, that where the resolution of all of them are, are just kind of, they just happen and, and, and that's it. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was kind of anticlimactic, especially the ending too, like it just abruptly ending and I was expecting a little bit more. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoyed the way it was shot. I just, I realized, I just realized that the director also uh, did uh Jesse James by the uh, assassination of Jesse James with Coward Overford, which is a very slow movie, but it's very well shot. 
Uh, so that kind of, I guess, makes sense. Uh, I enjoy the way this was shot. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I agree with uh, uh, Friends of Eddie Cola being the, the superior one uh, because of how grounded it is and how how much more real it feels like. And it's not slapping you in the face with with forced politics that feel like they, they don't belong in it. Yeah, I think the one big upside uh, in going back to Killing Them Softly for me was seeing how well shot it was. And also what you said, uh, which was the fun dynamic between Ben Mendelsohn and Scoot McNary that's pretty heavy at the beginning and gradually fades out uh, throughout the film, especially Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, he he was like my favorite actor for a long stretch of time. And now he's just been swallowed up into all these corporate films where he's playing a very generic version of himself in Star Wars and in, in I think it was Captain Marvel or something like that. But this is the kind of role where he's especially good because, you know, he was like like a version of that guy at one point. Like he's, he's a, a pretty well-known Australian actor who got uh, his career derailed, derailed, excuse me in the early nineties by heroin addiction. So he was like an up and coming teen actor and did all these like feel good summertime movies or whatever, and then heroin. And so there's just like a blank space for 1990 to 1999 or so. And then eventually he comes back up and really uh, takes off around 2013, 2012. And uh, around the same time of this movie, he did place beyond the pines, which was again, the moments when you're with him and with Ryan Gosling and they're robbing banks and it's all a lot of fun. Then it kind of peters yeah. out a bit. Although I think that movie's um, uh, kind of, it, it's a very ambitious film, but I think it mostly succeeds even if it's kind of disappointing when they, there's a subversion in the second act and takes away from them. Um, well, he was unforgettable in animal kingdom. And I think that oh, was yeah. only a couple years before killing them softly came out. Yeah. That was, I think, I want to say that was like 2010 or so, or 2011. Yeah, that was 2010, I think. And that was from, um, the director's name is 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 lost on me at the moment. He's he David he directed, Yeah, he directed The Rover, I, I believe, and um, the Timothy Chalamet, Robert Pattinson, Netflix movie, The King, uh, more recently. He's so good in Animal Kingdom. He's such a creep. He's such a freak. It's it, just a, a weird, creepy uncle, uh, you know, picking up an unconscious girl, bringing her to, you know, he's, Everybody should go check out Animal Kingdom if they haven't. That was really, I think, the launch point for everything that followed is being able to impress with that movie and then landing all these roles in the United States shortly thereafter. Um, I didn't mind some of the tweaks or even necessarily um, some of the politics of Killing Them Softly when it wasn't heavy-handed. The ending for me is just like, I was kind of like, why? Why? This is too much. Yeah. Where you have Brad Pitt kind of giving a diatribe about what America really is. And then you have Obama in the background giving a speech. And uh, that was a little that was a little too much for me. Well, it's also just funny to think of these, you know, hardcore criminals just watching C-SPAN all the time. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. not really something that you're going to see in a, you know, in a legal card game, you know. Yeah. Every time there's this, a, a TV screen, Obama's in it. It's very weird that everyone, I guess, in what in Boston, everyone just watches the news and there's a Obama speech playing at all. Every times. single day. You don't remember that? Well, you didn't live here, Hans. But yeah, Obama was no. just giving speeches every single day. Everybody in Boston loved it. It was the highest rated show on television. But yeah. Yeah. Who do you think gives the best performance in Killing Them Softly? And who do you think uh, gives the worst? I think Gandolfini's the best. I mean, he's not in it for very long, you know, like Hans mentioned, but he's, uh, you don't forget him. You know, he, yeah. that's a very memorable role for him. So far as the worst, I mean, it's hard to say worst. The thing about Brad Pitt is that he was a producer on the film. And he's probably why the film did so well financially for a movie of that type. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it ended up making, you know, like three times his budget or whatever, which is, you know, not a disaster. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of odd to see him as a professional hitman. You know, there aren't a lot of professional hitmans who give you, you know, the kind of wistful smile, mm -hmm. you know, that he kind of likes to go into, you know, in his movies. So, but it's for what it is. I mean, I guess it works. It's hard to say that there's a worse, but it's not, it's not bad per se. To me, the movie just doesn't really mesh together. 
there are different elements that don't really become one. Yeah. I think that's well, the he, he shows up at the what, like 40 minute mark, right? Something well, like that. Brad yeah, you, you get a if, complete first act essentially carved out by Scoot McNary and Ben Mendelsohn as their characters. And um, the guy who plays Johnny Sack on The Sopranos. There's a lot of Sopranos cast members who got rolled over to this film, not just Gandolfini. Um, and uh, Ray Liotta as well. This is kind of a, his, you know, the last 10 years of his career slash life is filled with very peculiar supporting roles between this movie and things like Observe and Report and right. uh, also Place Beyond the Pines, like I mentioned before. Just And in this one, he's just kind of, He's so pathetic. He's just like a, you know, it's very off type for him, but he does it so well uh, yeah. that it might be one of my favorite uh, performances or character performances rather in this film. But I think, um, I think the best actor, hmm, I, I got to think about that one. But for me, uh, Brad Pitt sticks out as the, the one who's maybe not bringing as much as everybody else. Not the right person to cast for that role. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 uh, like Max said, uh, he's probably the only reason why this movie it made thirty seven million with a budget of six fifteen. Uh, but every promotional material is just Brad Pitt holding the gun. Yes, holding Brad the Pitt. shotgun. Black background, yeah. Brad Pitt. That's all you need. And I, and I was expecting him to be more in it, but then he, like I said, he shows up at the like 40, 50 minute mark. Uh, well, maybe not that because it's only an hour and a half maybe yeah 35 40 minutes uh without him and then he just shows up and he's kind of like a peripheral character for most of it uh so that's a that's a weird choice from the producer to make himself the face of the film where he plays a secondary character well that probably wasn't him i guarantee you that was more the studio like if you have brad pitt and the re look the rest of the cast is again like richard jenkins what are you gonna put richard jenkins on the cover instead <laughs> no you're not Gandolfini's in it. You were generous when you said like 30 minutes. He's in it for about 10 minutes and it's just well chopped up and he eats up the scenery um, for every minute he's in it. Ray Liotta hadn't been like a bankable star since since the 90s. And I remember his his career uh, as a leading man anyway, kind of uh, hit a wall when he did that plane hijacking movie i think he was like a, a convict or something who took over a plane it was very con air-esque but it was just him and it was uh jim carrey's ex-wife from dumb and dumber i forget her name lauren something does that ring a bell that either of you what, guys lauren holly yeah her? lauren holly yeah. that that was a movie i don't <laughs> even know what you're talking about that's all right I've never heard of it yeah. it's probably better that way too but i remember uh usa would play it all around the clock uh, another actor who has just like a very limited role in this movie is Sam Shepard, who's just in it for literally like a minute. He's just he plays a heavy real quick and then he's out of the film entirely. Um, well, the guy who plays he plays Dylan mm -hmm. in the movie, who is played by Peter Boyle in Friends of Eddie Coyle. OK, and it, it's not 100 percent sure that they're the same, but they, they basically. I think that Higgins intended them to be the same character because they're mentioned, they're characters in both books, even though Dylan doesn't actually appear in a Kogan's trade mm -hmm. novel that Killing Him Softly is based on. I didn't even catch that, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, that's that Dylan, because when, uh, when Russell, uh, Ben Mendelsohn's character, you know, he goes to Florida to sell all of his uh, purebred dogs. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he mentions it to that guy, Kenny, uh, who's played by George Carroll, who's a Boston rapper, uh, Slane. That guy, he's been in a bunch of Boston crime films. Yeah. He mentioned I think... them ripping off the card game. And yeah. then uh, Frankie makes a big deal of saying, you know, Kenny works for Dylan. Like, we're dead now. Mm -hmm. Like, why, why did you do that? So, yeah, it is, it's the same guy, even though, like you said, yeah, they just go into, I think, Marky Trapman's trailer and, like, throw him out. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. But, that, yeah, that is Sam Shepard. Yeah. Slane, I think, what does he pop up? He pops up briefly, I think, in, is it? Jeez, was it the town or I don't know? It was it was one yeah, of those. I think yeah. Ben Affleck likes him because he's been in the town and Gone Baby Gone, maybe mm -hmm. another yeah. one. Now, as far as Friends of Eddie Coyle go, uh, you know, are you a fan of Robert Mitchum, just the actor in general? Because I'm I'm quite a big fan of Roger, especially for like golden age of cinema actors. I think he's pretty top of the line as a leading man, although. 
I, I think I like him more than the sum of his work on the whole anyway. I think he's obviously very good in like Night of the Hunter and Cape Fear. But um, I don't know if he was, aside from Friends of Eddie Coyle, where he's like a different, very worn down kind of different version of what he was known for. I don't know if he ever got that kind of big, exciting role uh, more than once or twice, which he could have been utilized for. I mean, if I'm thinking of favorite actors, it's probably him and Cagney are probably my favorites because I think that Mitchum has been in three of would have got to be in, you know, the top 20 or whatever. So, you know, out of the past, uh, Night of the Hunter and then Eddie Coyle, you know, I mean, those are the three of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And I think that getting him for Eddie Coyle, he makes the character, I mean, it's a movie, so you got to kind of make the characters more likable than they are in the book. And he's, he, he, gives, he lends a charisma that the character in the book does not really have. Yeah. Like there's still kind of a strength and power that's there in Mitchum, even though the character is defeated and just kind of scrambling around trying to find a way not to go to prison. Mm-hmm. So I and, think that creates a lot of tension in the role. Yeah, for certain. And uh, Peter Boyle is great in Friends of Eddie Quo. Right. He did a bunch of these gritty crime films during the 1970s, uh, which was not necessarily a, a surprise to me, but more of a treat when I uh, went back and was just like watching as many movies as I possibly could in 2020 when you couldn't leave your apartment I mean, you couldn't do anything. And I watched Joe, I watched uh, Hardcore, I watched all these films where he just plays Peter Boyle, essentially. But he's so good at always playing that guy, that kind of dependable, but you can't really trust him. He's a little bit skeevy kind of fellow. And um, this is definitely one of my favorite roles of his. Um, Hans, do you th- do yeah. you think he always plays that role because he's balding and always been balding, even when he was young? So he just has that horseshoe thing, and you can't be a good guy if you have a horseshoe haircut in a movie, <laughs> right? No, I don't. I don't think that's the case. I think look, <laughs> uh, actors, especially before I want to say 1990, that might be the real cutoff. Like you could. You know, yeah. if you had v- very visible imperfections, you could play just about any role. Like Dustin Hoffman. I would have been, I would have been leading man in the 60s or 70s because I have the barrel chest with no muscles. I got, I got the, you know, I'll, I'll you know, the bad, bad hairline, but I'll just disguise it. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I think I could have been a leading man if I was born, I don't know, 30 years earlier. Well, I, that's where we <laughs> beg to differ, Hans. Um, you know, it's kind of surprising to me that more uh, Hollywood types haven't tried to dig into the trove of George V. Higgins' work. I tried doing that. I don't know if I mentioned this to you on the call when we are talking about uh, business. We'll leave it at that for, for now. Um, I had reached out to the George V. Higgins estate back in like 2017 or 2018 to try to um, adapt trust, but they didn't want to reasonably they didn't want to give that away um to someone who had no film or really no nothing other than like shorts under their belt so i was like all right well what about what if we do uh like a short story or something and and then i cited um the sins of the father short story collection um have you read that before i've never read it i've never read any of his short stories actually they're oftentimes they're very very short so if you were going to like try and turn one of them into a, a feature length film, uh, you know, you would probably have to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of creating something to be able to bring that out to 90 minutes. And so uh, the conversation started revolving around, well, what if we could just adapt this book of short stories and um, mesh them together into something? And then um, that eventually fell through. This wasn't too long after. So Killing Them Softly, I think it was, what, 2014? 2012. 2012? Okay. So this was about 2017, 2018. They obviously had Brad Pitt acquire their movie. And so when I was like, uh, you know, so they were like, so what is what is the budget here? And the real answer was the budget is probably going to be like $10,000. I said, so we're <laughs> working with a budget of $100,000. And I thought that would, like, sound good. It's low budget, but good, you know, reasonable enough. And they said, oh, well, you know, we've never heard that, you know, that low of a budget for one of 
one of the ideas for these films before. Uh, and that's what led to them going, well, maybe you could just take these short stories because I don't think anyone's ever going to pick that up. But then that, that all didn't happen, unfortunately. Maybe someday, but um, we'll see. But you, you don't see anyone really going to Higgins' work to do series, to do movies. Um, and I feel like there's a wealth of material there that's just yet to be explored. It could be. I mean, to be honest, even though Higgins is a is a big influence on my work, I've only read a few of his novels, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he he had some issues, I think, kind of have with how he saw himself as a writer, uh, because he was in, he wasn't really influenced by crime fiction as a writer. You know, he was influenced by, you know, New Yorker writers like John O'Hara or, you know, John T. Fairley, another Irish American writer who, who used lots of dialogue and were, you know, realistic. You know, mm-hmm. naturalistic. And, uh, you know, he worked as a, a deputy and then assistant U.S. attorney for the Commonwealth, specializing in bank and mail fraud and also bank robberies. So when he, you know, Friends of Eddie Coyle was the first novel that he published. So he was just, I think in his mind, he was just being, you know, a naturalist kind of writing about what he knew, which was bank robbers. Uh, but the book was a, was a big success. And then he thought, oh, wait, I, I'm a crime novelist now. Uh, you know, which I, he didn't really want to be. He wanted to be accepted by the literary elite. I mean, that was his goal. And that's kind of how he lived his lifestyle, mm-hmm. as though he was part of that. Um, so I think in later books, there's a lot of dialogue. You know, there's less and less action. And all the exposition that you get is is basically just two guys sitting in a car talking to each other a lot of the time. You know, it's just like page after page of, of dialogue. And it might be a little too stagey. Or whatnot, I think, for, you know, maybe a big adaptation. I don't know, because some of these books I haven't read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most of the stuff I've read is the early stuff. And, you know, Eddie Coyle, I've, I've probably just read that, you know, probably half a dozen times. So for me, he's, he's mostly kind of like a one-author book. I mean, or one book author in that sense of what has really influenced me. Because I like, you know, I like Hogan's trade as well. But it doesn't do the job that Eddie Coyle does, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, one that does not get talked about too often is The Rat on Fire. I would recommend that to you if you haven't uh, checked it out before. Uh, but yeah, I that, find... that is one that I've read. Okay, I, I, I find that one to be um, one of my favorites anyway. I think that's a, a pretty solid uh, crime book. But yeah, I mean, he, he has a more limited um, bibliography than someone like Elmore Leonard who they really can't seem to get enough of that guy. They love turning every book of his into a series. Uh, and I certainly don't mind him. I know he's um, Anthony Sisko's favorite mutual friend of ours, uh, Slothman, Slothcast, uh, to everybody in the chat right now hanging out. Um, but uh, I don't know. His, his work, Leonard's work, does not strike a chord with me. And maybe it's just because I'm from Boston, uh, as much as well, Higgins. I think it's, yeah, well, I think it's more, there's more comedy or at least straightforward comedy in Leonard. It's, it's mm-hmm. a little more light, a little more rollicking, a little, you know, almost like Dickensian in yeah. that sense. Whereas Higgins is just grim, 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 you know, grime, 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 even though they're, you know, they're both authors who use a lot of dialogue and Higgins was the primary influence on, you know, Leonard writing crime fiction. You know, it's not a coincidence that, you know, they're grouped together so much. Right. Um, yeah, I think he's probably a little more Hollywood friendly because I think that Apart from there just being, you know, a, a, a lot of dialogue, you know, probably some of these books are 90% dialogue. Um, the, it's kind of low stakes as well. Like these, you know, these, these are not, got, these are blue collar criminals. You know, they're on the bottom rungs of the criminal ladder. These aren't the Whitey Bulgers or the John Gotties. These are the, the guys who are basically just trying to scrape by, you know, doing whatever they can to make money. And, you know, a lot of times that's illegally. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably another issue. I mean, if, if Brad Pitt says, hey, I love this script, I want to make it, then you know, maybe things are different. But I think it's probably a little bit harder to get some of the stuff adapted. I think what I especially take a liking toward uh, in fiction and in film, which you don't see realistically portrayed too often anyway, is uh, pathetic characters. Really, just more than down on their luck, just kind of so boxed in that... Uh, they're kind of humiliating to watch their trajectories unfold. And I feel like that is something that Higgins taps into pretty well um, with some of his books. Uh, Hans, let me, uh, let me just ask you, you watched these two movies. Did you feel like there was any sort of overlap between these two features 
and anything else that you're familiar with from these periods of time that could go well with them? I, I'm actually kind of surprised that they were written by the same person because they both feel so tonally different uh, from each other. Um, the Friends of Eddie Coyle uh, feels like a smaller story uh, with uh, more, yeah, down in their log characters, uh, uh, more realistic, more close to what would actually happen, uh, and then killing them softly. It's like a modernized version of something similar, but at the same time, I think, and I don't know if it comes from the performances, uh, but it, it was less serious, or at least it felt less serious uh, because of the Boston accents and the Soprano thing and like, and Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt, you know, that he yeah. didn't really dive into becoming that character, which is being Brad Pitt. So they do feel like, I guess the performances uh, make them feel like they're not coming from the same writer or at least based on, on the same writer. So I, I, I'm kind of surprised by that. Uh, and the, the, the biggest difference between them two is that the things that I enjoyed about one uh, is, is not what, what I liked on the other. Uh, so I guess that's why I'm kind of, kind of surprised by that. Uh, because on the, on the Eddie Coyle, I liked the, uh, how small it is, how, uh, <clears throat> well, the adding of Peter Boyle is always a plus for me. I love, uh, I love him every time he's on screen. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Uh, and, uh, and I feel like he saves a lot of moments by just being on the scene. Um, and, uh, uh, it kind of took me back to, to his character on uh, hardcore too, where he just steals every scene that he's in. Uh, maybe, I don't know if, if, because hardcore is not really much of a crime movie yeah i don't know what i would pair with this it it, it is but it's not it's not i guess uh they're tracking down a guy who's doing snuff films to save the the george c scott's daughter of course that's a crime that's that's not a crime he's just horny oh yeah well yeah (laughs) horny in the 70s is a crime uh yeah but I, i uh uh comparing both of them uh they do feel like they're coming from different sources uh and it's probably because of that the realism that one has doesn't like that scene with Ray Liotta just getting the shit bitten out of him uh it looked very realistic but after like the fifth punch to the mouth I was like all right like it's it's turning into cartoony you know because I was gonna say did you get the vibe at any point this was very like Zack Snyder-y when he was either beating up Ray Liotta or Brad Pitt killing Ray Liotta uh from the opposing car slow motion yes very slow motion but then also quick cuts and then you get the blood and everything it felt very sucker punch very uh watchman opening scene or something yeah 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 so that was kind of not not my favorite uh and that was uh, my favorite i enjoyed it quite a bit i wasn't passionate (laughs) at all it was wonderful there's something about those seventies movies that just have a different texture that you can't find anymore Mm -hmm. uh I, i don't i don't know if it's just that uh uh they're a little more free with uh their filmmaking uh so they don't have as much uh restrictions i guess or at least it feels that way it feels like uh they they let the scenes breathe a little bit more uh and uh the movies that i've seen from the 70s uh do feel like a like a time capsule because you it's very difficult to find something with a similar tone uh in modern day i I don't know if it's just because audiences are maybe not interested in, in something like that where it's maybe a little bit slower or maybe not you know graphic enough or or not uh uh offensive enough with the, with the way they speak to each other and all that but uh i i i've always liked i think if my memory is not failing me i've always liked uh, every 70s movie that that we've done and it's because they all have that 70s texture that you really can't find on on filmmaking now Mm-hmm. Well, something that I didn't know before doing this podcast was that Mitchum originally signed on to be Dylan to play Peter Boyle's character. But the director, Peter Yates, thought, well, no, I'll, I'll get him to play Eddie Coyle. But that was an issue because Mitchum only had uh, three weeks to shoot the movie. Oh, so wow. all of his all of his all of Mitchum's scenes were filmed within three weeks. So it's very much just, you know, going around the city on these different locations They you they did use a warehouse 
on the waterfront for some of the scenes, like the scene where, you know, Eddie gets shot in the car, that was all done, you know, on a soundstage. But um, yeah, and uh, he, yeah, he did it all in three weeks. And I, there was an article in Rolling Stone that came out that year in 73 about the making of the film. And all the other cast members, you know, Boyle and also uh, Richard Jordan, they were pretty antsy about the production because they didn't have any time to do it. You know, they thought, well, this is all gonna have to, you know, there are gonna be tons of reshoots and, you know, tons of post-production stuff on the film. But that gives the film such, you know, this, this authenticity that you want from like, you know, kind of like the grimiest 70s crime films. It looks almost like a Policio Tesco movie. You know, it looks almost like those like super grimy Italian crime films. Of course, it doesn't have the action or, you know, some of the melodrama that they do, but it has the same kind of look, like the low budget. We're in this, we're definitely in the city and you can kind of like, you can see the dirt and the dust in the air. Right. You know, I think it, first of all, that's very impressive that they managed to get all of that done within three weeks. I had no clue about that. But I think there's also something to be said about the fact that, the better crime film of the two uh, between Friends of Eddie Coyle and Killing Them Softly uh, was done by someone who I, I don't believe Peter Yates was known as like a crime director, aside from Bullet, right? With Steve McQueen. Well, he'd you... done Robbery before that, which mm-hmm. was, a, I think, I think it was a British film. And that's kind of, you know, someone in Hollywood saw that and they thought, oh, well, we don't have a lot of British directors who can do action. So they brought him for a bullet. And then again, even though there's there's not a whole lot of action in Eddie Coyle, there is that kind of mini car chase in the parking lot um, when Jackie Brown, uh, you know, gets arrested, which isn't in the book. In the book, they just surround his car with, you know, shotguns and say, get out. You know, there's no car chase. So I guess they brought him in for, you know, this like 30 minute, right. you know, you know, action scene with uh, with the feds. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, bullet is obviously a different story. Right. So, uh, I mean, Peter Yates did another film that I quite like, only um, I think it was a couple of years after Friends of Eddie Coyle called Breaking Away with uh, Dennis Christopher. Are you familiar with that film at all? I've heard of it, but never seen it. Yeah, it's a movie about a teenage cyclist. And uh, it, it's like there's no overlap at all between this movie and Breaking Away. Uh, in terms of like tone or anything else, it's just like a feel-good kind of family film, and it's a it's a terrific movie. It was my favorite movie I discovered uh, Who last stars year. in that? Dennis Christopher, but it has a young Dennis Quaid and Daniel right. Stern in it as well. Uh, I think they just uh, remastered it and put it out on some physical media boutique company might have put it back out. Uh, Dennis Christopher is probably best known for the TV movie version of It or Fade to Black, the kind of schlocky '80s horror film um but it, i know it, i i don't know it, i think it's just interesting that you don't have that kind of director anymore necessarily uh and if you do no nah, I, I just don't think you do I, another guy that i think compares to peter yates is somebody like uh richard brooks who directed looking for mr Goodbar, where it's like he's able to jump between all these varying movies of different tones and there's not a whole lot of um, connective tissue between these kinds of films. It seems like nowadays it's like a director has in their head what they want to do and they seem to stick to that and either go a very commercial route or maybe they decline later in their career, somebody like an Alex Cox type. Um, but yeah, uh, that's not to say that Andrew Dominic's work or, or collective efforts uh, are, are lesser. Uh, I haven't seen Chopper but I've heard nothing but good things about that. That's the Eric Bana movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, Chopper's good. Um, and Bana was cast against type in that movie. He was a, he was a comedic actor in Australia. And uh, Mark Reed, the, the real life Chopper, saw him and told Andrew Dominic, you need to get this guy. Like, this, this guy can play me. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he's, he, uh, he owns that movie. And there's lots of interesting technical stuff. Um, in that film as well, the way Dominic uses lighting and mise-en-scene because you have this kind of like, like harsh light in the, on all the prison scenes. And then you go into downtown, I think it was, I think it was Melbourne, and, which, which is a, you know very much like the concrete jungle. So you have these two very different looks mm-hmm. in the film. And it's very striking when you watch it. Uh, do you have any thoughts about Eric Bana as an actor? Because I, I, I know everyone uh, raves about him in Chopper, but on the whole, he just... 
he seems like a very boring leading man type in everything else that he's been in, which I've only seen him in like a couple of things like funny people. And uh, I think Hulk. Ang Lee's Hulk or so. Yeah. Well, about, Chopper, I think he... it's a bit, um, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. no, you go. Oh, yeah. oh well, Chopper is, it's a bit different as well because I'm pretty sure uh, Nicholas Finding Rafen saw it because there seems to be a, an influence from Chopper onto Bronson. Bronson. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's very similar. Like if you if you've seen Bronson and then you watch Chopper, you'd be like, oh okay, this was this was an influence here. Mm-hmm. The performance that Vanna gives. Do you have any thoughts about Nicholas Winding Refn as a as a filmmaker? I mean, I love him. I love the Pusher trilogy. I mean, those are three of my favorite crime films. And uh, you know, he's he's done some other stuff I like too. I mean, mostly I just I rewatched those because you know I'm I'm you know a crime author so. You know, right. those, those are three of the most well-written crime movies I can think of. That first Pusher movie uh, is what inspired me to get into directing because it was so cheaply done, but well done. Like you can see that he worked with a very limited type budget. That's the kind of work that only a young filmmaker could do. And um, I remember seeing that and being like, that feels doable. And uh, it certainly was not doable when I was 21 or 22 years old. I think I wasted like $10,000 on credit cards trying to do something similar to that. It was a big mistake. But uh, trying to be Kevin Smith. Just, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> credit cards. no, no. Well, I think no. He, well, his dad was uh, Lars von Trier's cinematographer. So he yeah. probably had more than just, you know, the camera and whatever budget he had. But yeah, he, I think right. he was super young when he made that. I don't, it couldn't have been much more than 20, I don't think. Uh, well, he did a short film version where he starred as the lead character, which I can't imagine because he's the most awkward looking human on the planet. Um, but uh, yeah, he I think it was made and I, maybe I'm wrong about this. I think he was about 25 years old when he got that movie done. And um, yeah, he's got uh, all kinds of weird filmmaking connections like what you just cited there. Like I know he's vaguely related to Brigitte Nielsen, Sylvester Stallone's ex-wife. And that is, I think, that might be his aunt or something. I don't know. It's just like a weird cross-pollination of creative people. Uh, and I quite like his feud with Lars von Trier. I get a real kick out of that, how how much they just seem to have a strong distaste for one another. Well, I mean, I think he's probably known von Trier since he was born, pretty mm-hmm. much. So, yeah. You know, there, there's, some of it could be tongue-in-cheek. I mean, some of it could be real. I mean, who really knows? I mean, yeah, they're both obviously pretty weird. So, yeah. yeah. Who really I, knows? I think it's probably more tongue in cheek for Lars von Trier than it is Reffen because Reffen seems to take actual jabs at him. Yeah, Reffen Reffen doesn't seem like a fun guy. You know, he doesn't seem like a guy you're gonna joke around with. What are you all. talking about? Not a I've, fun guy. I Didn't see... you see the documentary where he takes his family to the Lego store to buy Legos for himself? Yeah, no, that's no, a I, I didn't. I don't think I've ever seen him smile. Has he ever smiled? Yeah, no, he exactly. looks like one of those fish That's... characters on SpongeBob, you know, just yeah. no chin at all. But uh, AI he's character. yeah, no he's... shoulders, no shin. He's one of my favorite filmmakers for a long time. I considered him my favorite director, but I haven't been. I don't know. Some of his more recent films have been a little more hit and miss uh, to me. And Too Old to Die Young, I thought was just a little too, little too um, ambitious for what it was. Actually, um, did you I think might... it was too much refin? I didn't think it was too much refin. I thought it was just a little, you know, he could have, he could have done what he was trying to do in much less time. You didn't have to do. I think it was like ten episodes, and every episode was about an hour to an hour and a half long. And uh, it's fine as far as like atmosphere, and Miles Teller is good, and uh, one of whichever ball I think is William Baldwin isn't it? And he's a great creep in that show. But on the whole, uh, I, I could have probably done without five of those episodes. Are you excited about Mania Cup? Because that actually sounds like a like a property that he could do something interesting with. Is there anything happening with that, though? Because it, it's been a while since they announced that he was going to do Mania Cop for HBO. And nothing has seemed to have come of that. Are you looking uh, did it up? You watch, yeah. Uh, did you watch the the now the well now you mentioned uh, Von Trier? Didn't they do some episodes of The Kingdom? Is that out? That ain't out yet. 
Um, okay. At least not in the U.S. There hasn't been uh, a subtitled version or I've seen stills from the set. And I think there was a very brief trailer. Uh, Max, have you seen uh, Lars von Trier's The Kingdom series? Yeah, I have. Uh, I mean, I saw it on DVD. I mean, a long time ago, back when I, I went through I mean, in my early 20s. I mean, it was all about Von Trier pretty much because um, I'd seen Dancer in the Dark and then I saw Elements of Crime. And uh, I watched the, the Criterion DVD of Elements of Crime, which has uh, this documentary about him called Transformer. Mm-hmm. And after that, I thought, wait, who is this guy exactly? I just, you know, I had to see everything he made pretty much. Um, and he's, yeah, he's another guy that, you know, I'll watch his movies for the writing. Like the writing is really, really good. Um, he's got the whole kind of like Scandinavian kind of classical, you know, approach to drama, you know, like he knows classical dramaturgy, all this stuff. So, you know, his, his, his scripts are always good. And, you know, visually there's always something interesting going on, whether it's, you know, low budget or, you know, his early films were super stylized. I, I actually, I prefer his earlier stuff, the Europa trilogy that he made. Yeah, I dug into that. I, I, I obviously probably became more familiar with him through his more recent works. And then I went back and checked out Europa and Element of a Crime. And it feels so like uh, German expressionistic era where he's just got very artificial looking scenes that he's using or backdrops and, and whatnot that he's using uh, intentionally. And it really heightens the, the visual atmosphere of uh, those films. I mean, it's interesting to see that he starts there and kind of goes into more of a uh, longer form, uh, just big, big projects toward, uh, you know, later in his career with things like Nymphomaniac and House the Jack Built, uh, Antichrist. Uh, and he's one of these guys who has successfully, I think, maintained a standard of quality throughout his career by changing styles about every 15 years or so. Um, do you have a particular favorite, uh, of his, maybe from his earlier career and then later career? Well, I think elements of crime is my favorite from his early career. And, uh, you know, rope is also great. Uh, the one between that epidemic is also pretty good. That's back when he was co-writing his scripts, uh, with a guy called Niels Forsell, who he didn't, uh, use after those three movies. Um, I think after that he did, maybe he did the kingdom after that. And then he moved into the dogma thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you know Dogma 95 is a movement I don't really care about it but a lot of good movies came out of it so you know I mean that's important I mean his his stuff is always really good I think the last I haven't actually seen his last few movies to be honest I think the last one that I saw was Melancholia which is probably you know 10 years old you know at this point yeah. so I have a lot of stuff you know <laughs> but yeah he does he, he did make a few epics in there in the last 10 years. Certainly, yeah. I would definitely recommend checking out uh, both parts of Nymphomaniac and uh, The House of Jack Built. The House of Jack Built, especially, I think, is just a hilarious movie. And it's probably Matt Dillon's yeah. uh, best role. That's one we got to get around. We got to get around to covering a lot of Von Trier on this show. I don't think we've covered any of his films to, to this point, no? Yeah, no, I haven't seen many of his early films either, just by looking at this list. Uh, I think I've only seen... Uh... What Dogville, I've seen Antichrist, Melancholia, the two Nymphomaniacs and the House of Jack built. So I, I really need to get into the, those early Von Trier shorts uh, or, or films. Uh, the Refn, Mania Cop, uh, apparently um, it's going to start shooting finally. Well, actually, never mind. This is from October 2021. So the most recent news is from 2021 where it said that... Uh, uh, COVID affected his schedule, but now he's starting shooting his next feature film, which is the remake of Maniac Cop, and he's got the writer of uh, Captain America Winter Soldier oh. to write the thing. And he also wrote uh, that series that you were talking about, uh, Too Old to Die Young. So I know he's uh, team in charge. Refn's got some kind of, I think it might be a reality show or something for Netflix that's coming out with his daughter as the star. That's what. That's the only thing I've heard about that he's been up to. I didn't know that Maniac Cop was a go and that they were going to shoot it. He's going to direct it? I thought he was only producing. It says here that he's directing it, uh, so I, 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 I don't know. Did you say it was a but, feature? Yeah. Maniac it was Cop not supposed to be a yep. feature. It was supposed to be a series. 
I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's dead because the, the most recent news is from 2021 October and nothing else. So if it's 2021 I, October, that, that's very recent as far as news on that project goes, because I remember the last bit of news I heard about it was like 2017 or 2018. 2019. Most articles are from 2019, which is when they announced it. Uh, that from 2021, uh, it's from a, a, a Swiss film festival, apparently. Uh, so it was in French, but that's like that. It's very not. Uh, I don't. I don't trust the fact that no one else is covering, and it's just like this weird post that someone posted from a from a, a film festival in Switzerland. So I, I, uh, I think we would have heard more about it by now if if he was actually working on it. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Uh, I'm just reading the chat right now. Banna overshadowed Pitt and Troy. Speaking of Refn, where the hell is Copenhagen Cowboy? I think that's the Netflix show that he's working on with his daughter. Um, what happened to Ryan Gosling's relationship with Refn? I thought they were dating. Uh, LOL. God, I love Refn. A lot of Refn fans in the chat tonight. Uh, Refn was supposed to remake Logan's Run a while back. That could have been very interesting. Um, well, getting back to the Pusher trilogy for a minute, I think that it is similar to, maybe this is why I like it so much. I mean, it is similar to Eddie Coyle in that they are crime films, but they're really about the criminals rather than about the crimes themselves. You know, there, there's so much character in those movies. And I mean, some unforgettable characters, you know, like whether it's, you know, Milo or whoever in the Pusher trilogy, uh, you know, Tony, you know, all the, all the guys. You know, it's really the characters that you remember, not necessarily whatever crimes are being committed in them. Do you have a, a favorite of the three films? I go back and forth between the first and the second. It really depends on my mood. I mean, they're all they're all different, to be honest. And I mean, they all have a different lead actor. Um, if I had to pick one, actually, I might pick the third, actually. Really? I think I think he's my favorite character. Yeah. The Angel of Death. Uh, so, but it's, it's hard to choose because I mean, they're all great. You know, it's, it's hard to choose. He's such a distinct, uh, actor as well. They brought him back for the UK remake of Pusher that had, uh, one of the guys from coupling, I think, you know what? I recommended uh, a friend of mine, check out Pusher. Cause he's not sold on ref. And I was like, listen, you gotta just check out, check out that first Pusher movie and your opinion will change. Cause I think he's only seen like only God forgives or something. And that seems to leave Ooh. a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it's terrific. Um, it's, and he, I think it, yeah. it's great if you're familiar with him, but it's kind of a, a tough one. If that's your introduction to Refn, it's kind of a, a difficult one to get through, I think, because it's very long and it's very slow. It's very so if Refn. you're familiar, yeah, if you're familiar with his style, then but probably what would be his uh, the entry point, I think? Uh, drive is probably his most, uh, I guess widely liked movie right mm. the one that you would probably recommend to someone that's not familiar with his style or like what type of movies he does uh that was my favorite pusher actually the remake no i'm kidding i just wanted to get a reaction <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh yeah that was richard coyle by the way the guy richard coyle from coupling yeah so he accidentally checked out my friend checked out this movie and was like this is total shit i turned it off after 15 minutes uh but anyway, but the point was, I, they recast the same actor for that movie. There's also an Indian remake of Pusher, which is, I, all three of these movies are essentially the same, except the Indian one has a very different ending where uh, the protagonist, you know, Dances? instead of, what's that? That's a, that's a dance number. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no dance numbers. Surprisingly, RRR had a couple of dance numbers. That's a big Indian, yeah. biggest Indian movie. Um, no, instead he sees God in the third act and is like, yeah, oh. God told me I have to kill all the bad guys. So I'm going to go kill all the bad guys. And then that's what he does. And so he's like a superhero at the end of the movie. Which nice. is like not, RRR. Like RRR. That's right. Well, they defeat yeah. the colonists and then sleep with uh, the pretty white woman in the movie and RRR. And the friendship is mended, you know, because they're on different sides on that. But. That's uh, that's terrific. That's what I would recommend with both of these movies, Friends of Eddie Coyle and uh, Killing Himself. He's RRR, the number one hit of Indian cinema this year. Anyway. Is there any any scenes of like, 
outrageous action that happens because I've seen a couple of uh, Indian movies where there's a guy that just like uh, puts like a bunch of bikes together into like a giant ball and then tries to hit people with it. So shit, I've seen shit like that in those movies, and I was expecting something like that in this RRR movie because it's like a the biggest blockbuster ever released, right? Yeah. Is yeah, there anything? Of course, of course there is. Yes. Oh. There's like scenes where he's face to face with a tiger and the tiger's gonna bite him and he's it's it's intense. It's great. It's uh a very enjoyable time. So uh anyway, you know what? I think uh it's getting late here on the East Coast, so I think we should probably wrap up the show for this evening. Um, Max, why don't you just give a quick moment to plug your book and anything else you've got going on right now? I uh, hope people check it out so everybody listen well. Yeah, my book, uh, the crime novel uh, called God is a Killer came out uh, last month uh, with the British press called Close to the Bone. Um, you know, I'm pretty proud of the book and it's been doing really well. Um, I love the cover as well, which was done by Matthew Revert, who's one of my favorite designers. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of similar tastes. So I was hoping he'd come up with a great cover for the book and he did. Um, I mean, I'm beyond pleased with it. And um, yeah, it's, it's been really great so far. It's been in uh, three days it'll have been out for a month. So I'm sure I'll post something about that. But uh, yeah, I've been amazed by the reception so far. Terrific. Uh, are you planning a follow-up already? Are you working on anything at the moment? Yeah, I am. I actually, well, I, I finished the first draft of my next book uh, right before the uh, God is a Killer came out. So, uh, so right now I'm just, I'm working with that. Um, you know, actually I write in longhand uh, on legal pad. So right now I'm still wow. typing it up actually. And when I type it up, it's, it's kind of like the first edit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I get, I get rid of a lot of stuff when I type it up. So I'm doing that right now, but it's a book about um, Irish gangsters in Boston um, that I, I started researching uh, last January, 2021 and started actually writing it about a year ago. So yeah, the first draft took about a year to write. And, uh, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, you know, I'll have uh, something a bit more solid. But I really like how it's come along so far. And doing research for the book was a lot of fun too. Awesome. Uh, do you think you're going to put it out in a similar manner uh, going the indie press route? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think, yeah, for now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay indie. All right. Well, I am going to check that out as soon as uh, it eventually is published. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, like I said before, I've been enjoying the the book you've already written thus far. I hope people check it out. Uh, Thank you. And thanks for getting it. Absolutely. And uh, if you guys who are watching this right now would like to get uh, more episodes of movies, go to patreon.com slash lowerez $5 tier. If you're listening to this on Spotify, on iTunes, uh, something I would like to promote is leaving a review and a rating. Because some of these reviews and ratings have not been, have, they've been good reviews and ratings, not too flattering towards Hans and I. Some very choice words for Hans and I, but five stars nonetheless. I don't understand yeah. it, you know? Um, but so go ahead and do that. So drop us some ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Spotify is a little more picky. I think you have to do like five, you have to listen to five episodes and have an account yeah, before so, you can leave one. Yeah, go listen to five episodes and then do a review. Yes, do that. Back to back. <laughs> That's yes. your weekend, sort it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that has been movies for this week. Thank you guys for joining us for yet another an impromptu live show. I know we didn't put up any posts this week uh, and it was a little later than usual, but thanks for hanging out. And Max, thank you for coming on the show. I, I thought this was a great time to chat with you about these two films. Uh, maybe we can do Pusher at some point, Pusher Trilogy. And uh, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>